down, bend all the way down to our level, sending Jesus to become a human being so that we could relate, so that we could understand, so that we could know you. What a wonderful gift you've given to us in Jesus. And this morning especially, Father, we're thankful that uh, there are some men coming forward to be baptized, to acknowledge their uh, relatively new relationship with you, and to publicly declare their commitment to you. And so, Father, this is a meaningful day in many ways for us as a church. And so I just pray, Father, that your spirit would have freedom this morning in each one of our spirits, that you would speak to us at a heart level, that you would just remind us of who we are in Christ, and that you would remind us about why we're still here in the world, and, Father, that we would rise to the occasion to be your people Uh, both today and every day. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. I guess the children are dismissed, and um, we're looking forward to you to come back uh, before the baptism this this morning. (laughs) We hope they come back. I think uh, one, of the, one of the more annoying uh, characteristics of uh, our contemporary living that's found on so many different levels in our culture and in our lives uh, is the placing of blame on other people or other things. It's almost like we live in a culture of blame. Nothing is anybody's fault. Everything is somebody else's or something else's fault. Uh, People blame anybody or anything for uh, many of their own miseries. And so um, it seems to me like this is part of our uh, Adamic nature. You might remember way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God confronted Adam about his sin. You remember how Adam responded in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12. Here's what he said. The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me. She gave me from the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's her fault. In fact, it's your fault, God, because you gave her to be with me, and then she did that, and I ate, and, you know, it's her fault. My wife has often said that she thinks a big reason that I got married to her was so that I would have somebody to blame for everything that's wrong with me. I don't know where she got that, but it sounds an awful lot like uh, Adam here, right? But uh, Eve wasn't much better. The very next verse, verse 13, says, The Lord God said to the woman, what, what in the world did you do? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's his fault. Nothing's my fault. It's kind of part of our Adamic nature, if you will, to just blame somebody else uh, for everything that goes wrong. And, you know, I think you see it in our culture quite a bit. You see it in the court system, right? We're having a lot of debates about district attorneys and and so forth and prosecuting uh, criminals and all of that. And uh, I think you see it uh, not only in the court system, but I think it pervades politics. Nothing's anybody's fault. It's always the other administration, and both administrations are guilty. And uh, psychology, it seems to me, thrives, on being able to find somebody to blame for everything that's wrong with me. And often, this blaming idea kind of bleeds over into our relationship with God. And so, um, every time something goes wrong, we want to look for somebody to fix the blame on. 
In, um, <clears throat> in um, John chapter 9, uh, Jesus meets a blind man. Do you remember this? Uh, born blind, this little baby born blind, and uh, now he's grown up and so forth. And the first thing the disciples ask, right? They're like, who sinned that this kid was born blind? Was it his parents? Was it him? And in the third verse of uh, John chapter 9, here's how Jesus answers it. He said, it was not this man who sinned, and it wasn't his parents who sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God had a plan for this guy's life. And it involved him being born blind and healed by Jesus when he came. And that was all in the works, you know, since the time he was born. And you think about that. Uh, is it okay with us if God has a plan for our lives that includes, you know, uh, sometimes some misery? In uh, Most scholars think that the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. And uh, many people feel that Job answers the oldest question in the world, which is uh, said to be, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is that? Why does that happen like that? And so um, when you turn to the book of Job, if you have your Bible with you, um, uh, Job was a really good person. Here's the first verse in the book of Job. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Here you've got probably the best person on the planet uh, back in his day. He was a really good person. But there was a day when Satan came before the Lord. And you know the story probably, but in verse 6, um, here's what we read. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, right, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, and he said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? The Lord brings this up. Have you considered my man, Job, that there is none like him on the face of the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord, and here's what he said. Well, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, his possession. You've increased the land. But stretch your hand out, touch all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands, only against him do not stretch out your hands. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And you know the story, he does everything he can to destroy this man. Thinking that Job is going to curse God to his face. And you can fill in the blank, read the story there, but if you go all the way to uh, verse 20, uh, then Job arose, he, his first, you know, Satan comes and takes all of his property away, loses all of his wealth, then goes after his kids, takes all of his kids out, and, uh, and, and then verse 20, Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, uh, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He fell on the ground, and he worshipped, and he said, naked I came in, to the world from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the Bible says this, in all of this, Job did not sin or 
charge or blame God for anything. Job did not blame God for allowing Satan to do all of this. You know, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the New Testament, uh, Satan is called the small g, God of this world. And sometimes I wonder if the things that happen, you know, uh, that we attribute to ourselves or to other people or even to God aren't really the work of our enemy, uh, Satan. And so, you know the story here, Job, uh, you know, he wrestles with... uh, he wrestles with uh, all of these friends. He has three friends that come and they try to accuse him and blame him. And, and the whole book is really uh, him going back and forth with his three friends. In the middle of the book, uh, in chapter 19, I think it is, uh, Job talks about his Redeemer and uh, putting confidence and faith in his Redeemer. And then in the latter part of the book of Job, God comes and just pelts Job with questions. It's like, Job, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did You think you know me so well? And he just pelts them with questions, chapter after chapter of questions. And finally, at the end of the book of Job, in chapter 42, Job says this. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I heard about you, and I knew some things about you, but now I've come face to face with God you know, through all these questions and so forth. Now my eyes see you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I had the wrong conception of God. I had the wrong understanding of my relation, who God is and who I am. And uh, now Job comes before the Lord and simply repents. Job was humbled by the presence of God, right? He was humbled. He was done questioning. He was recognizing God's sovereignty and God's authority over his life, and uh, he was yielding to God. So I want to suggest to you this morning that blaming, you know, only makes situations, bad situations, worse. Blaming piles on the hurt. It divides. It tears down. It never solves the problem. Uh, To blame another person is really to kind of play God, you know, as if we are the judge of the universe. Blaming others, right, is usually a cop-out for uh, things that we have failed at that we don't want to face. And so we find somebody else uh, to put the blame on, just like Adam did at the very beginning. So all that is kind of a prelude to Jesus telling a story. Jesus tells a story, Luke chapter 18, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. uh, Jesus is... uh, with his disciples, and uh, he tells a story about two guys who come to the temple to pray and kind of their approach to God. Um, you remember um, last week, we, uh, with the prodigal son, we realized that, you know what, you'll never really have a great understanding of yourself and who you really are until you understand who your creator really is. That's kind of what happened to Job. He thought he was somebody and You know, God was somebody, but the more he got exposed to God, uh, the more he realized who he was in the face of uh, his creator, his maker. Uh, When we have a relationship with God, it affects our relationships with other people. But like any relationship, even our relationship with God is dependent on communication, right? Our relationship with God is dependent on communication, which means that God speaks 
and I respond. God speaks primarily through his word, right? And I respond primarily through prayer. I respond to this God who's revealing himself and making himself known to me, making his will known to me, and so forth. So in Luke chapter 18, in verse 9, here's what we read. Uh, We're talking about Jesus. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus is telling a story to people uh, who are uh, trusting in their own righteousness. You know, if, if you don't have a definition for what it means to blame people, this would be a good place to kind of think about a definition of what blaming really is. It's when you're always right, you know, because you're righteous and you're right all the time and it's always somebody else that's wrong. And so Jesus is telling a story to people who have the problem of blaming everybody else for everything that goes wrong. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and then treated everybody else with contempt. To treat others with contempt is to treat people with disrespect. It's to kind of despise other people and to blame other people. So in verse 10, Uh, The next verse, two men went up into the, here's the parable, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, these are the same two groups of people we talked about last week. Remember, Jesus addressed the parable of the prodigal son to uh, two groups of people, the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners. And they were worlds apart back in Jesus' day. So we're talking about the same two uh, groups of people. And again, we can't really know ourselves until we really know Uh, the God who made us and created us and loves us. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And here's the Pharisee's prayer, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like other people. There's me and then there's everybody else. I'm righteous, they're all wrong, right? Uh, We have two groups of people in America today who kind of blame each other for all the problems that we have, you know, and uh, each group would say, hey, the other group is responsible for everything that's wrong in the world. We're right, they're all wrong, right? And so that's this guy, the Pharisee, standing by himself, praise God, I'm so thankful I'm not like other people, Uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. There's me, and then there's everybody else. And uh, that's what we get when we get a blaming person. Now, the Pharisees, you know, believed in righteousness, but they had their own brand of righteousness. They decided what was righteous. And you might remember, if you uh, go back a little bit, um, in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, And uh, verse 6, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Jesus is now talking to the Pharisees. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These people say all the right things, but their hearts are a million miles away. They don't really know me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And uh, not only that, but you might recall in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus, in this great sermon, um, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, this is important for us. We need to kind of be alert to this because Jesus said this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness, they have their own brand of righteousness, you know, and they have a fine way of setting aside the true commandments of God for the sake of traditions and holding on to their traditions and their interpretations and, and all of that rather than allowing God to actually speak to them in the context of a relationship through his word and by his spirit. And Jesus says, you know, if your righteousness isn't better than that, you're never going to see heaven. So it's kind of the opposite of what we would normally think. Um, the Apostle Paul in Philippians, you know, Paul was a Pharisee before he met the Lord. Uh, Paul was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like at the top of the pile of Pharisees. And uh, the only thing, it was, it was the wrong pile that he was on top of. And uh, after he spent about 30 years with the Lord, um, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, listen to what Paul says about the Pharisees' righteousness. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I'm a good person, Paul is saying, right? I have some confidence in who I am. Um, if anybody thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow, he sounds like Job. Uh, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count all of that pharisaical righteousness as rubbish, he says, as garbage. What I think I can bring to the table when I come before God is garbage compared to what God gave me in Christ, the righteousness that's mine as a result of what Christ did on the cross. He says, I count it as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, you know what? All of that righteousness, this guy standing in the temple praying like he is, is garbage. It's, it's rubbish. It's useless compared to knowing God. So we go back to the parable, right? The Pharisee is standing uh, by himself praying to God. I thank you I'm not like other people. Uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get and so forth. This parable is about our attitude in approaching God in prayer, about our attitude in our relationship with God. And uh, this guy was trusting in himself. He understood himself to be a good person, a righteous person. And you might ask the question, why do you think this guy was talking to God like this? Why was he presenting to God this stuff? Hey, I'm a good person. I don't do this. I do that. You know, why is he telling God this stuff? Well, he's making a case for himself. He's trying to, uh, you know, negotiate with God in prayer. He doesn't understand who God really is. 
Uh, God can't be put off with bargaining and with surface traditions and ceremonies and so forth. God is after people's hearts. God wants us to know him at a heart level as he knows us at a heart level. And you notice how this um, attitude toward God in prayer affects other people, right? Um, How we approach God, I love the motto of this church, you know, the gospel changes everything. When the gospel is the core of our relationship with God, it changes our attitude toward other people. Notice this guy, he's like, you know, I thank you, God, that I'm not like everybody else. That is not the attitude. You know, God so loves who? The whole world, you know? And so it it affects our relationships with other people. When you don't know God, you don't know the truth about yourself. Now, the other guy is standing far off, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This other guy, when the Pharisee is standing alone, I get the picture of self-confidence and self-assurance and and so on. Uh, But this guy, this tax collector, he has a whole different attitude. He's standing far off. He doesn't want to be in the center of things. He's kind of in the background of things, away from the center. And he won't even look in God's direction. He has this sense of of who God is, and uh, his head is bowed rather than, you know, held high. And uh, he's beating on his chest, which is a symbol of confession. And here's his prayer, seven words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Seven short words. And in his prayer, you might have noticed in the Pharisee's prayer, it's, I don't do this, and I do this, and I, I, I is through his prayer. This guy is just like, there's just two people in my prayer. It's God who is high and lifted up, and it's me who's a sinner in the presence of this absolutely holy God. Um, And so what a difference. Uh, One time I was asked to preach a sermon um, years ago, Uh, on Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, and it changed my life. So I just thought it's relevant here. Just one verse, here's what it says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. I entitled the sermon, Where Can You Find God? Where can you find God today? And then uh, he goes on and says this, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with people of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where can I find God? Well, he's high and lifted up, dwelling in eternity. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy means other. It means separated from. He's different than us, right? He's in a realm of his own. But where else can you find him? Well, he lives in people whose hearts are contrite. He lives in people whose hearts are humble, who uh, come before God and know who they are based on their relationship with God. And he brings mercy and grace, right? When you know God as high and lifted up, you know yourself as needing mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are like two sides of a character trait of God. Mercy is all about compassion, It's God's compassion. You know, the 103rd Psalm says that God remembers that we're made out of dirt, dust, right? You go all the way back to Genesis 
out of the dust of the ground. And grace is all about forgiveness. Mercy and grace are like two sides of a character trait of God. Grace is about forgiveness. It's God's undeserved favor for anybody who sincerely asks. Grace and mercy come because God loves us. And so as Jesus continues this uh, parable, you'll notice in the next verse, verse 14, here's what he says. The first part of this verse, he says, I tell you, he's talking about the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man. This man, this tax collector, went away from the prayer, reconciled to God, rather than the Pharisee who thought he was all squared away. Um, The word justified is a legal term. It means acquitted. It's the opposite of condemned. It means to be declared righteous by God, but on God's terms. It describes our status before God, who uh, is called, right, the, um, the judge of all the earth. Romans chapter 5, Paul explains this a little bit further. First couple of verses, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have a righteousness that's purchased for us by God. It's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. It's not about who we are. It's about who God is, you know. And when that gets to be real in our lives and the core of our relationship, it changes everything about our lives. And then I think Jesus summarizes the whole point of him telling this story in the very last sentence of this section of scripture. And uh, here's what he says. Um, Everybody who exalts himself will be humbled, but the person who humbles himself will be exalted. The person who humbles himself will be exalted. These two words, humbled and exalted, describe two attitudes in our approach to God in prayer. Um, If we're humbled, uh, we come to God and we say, God, have mercy on me. God, please, you know, I'm so thankful for your grace. If we feel exalted and entitled and we come to God like the Pharisee to argue and make a case for ourselves, we come to God with, hey, you owe me. I've been such a good person, the least you could do is X, Y, Z. And we start to try to negotiate with God. Um, You know, uh, it's two different approaches to God in prayer. So uh, the quickest way, it seems to me, to, to humble ourselves is to stop blaming anybody else for our own stuff. To stop blaming other people. Because what that does is force us to kind of look at ourselves and in the presence of this absolutely three times holy God, you know, we are reduced to needing mercy and grace. And God is only too happy to give us his mercy and his grace because he's high and lifted up, but he also dwells in the hearts of those who recognize their need for him, those who are humbled in his presence. Recognize that in approaching God, we're coming to one who is high and lifted up, but also one who is merciful and full of grace. If I'm going to be in his presence, I'm going to have to have a relationship with him whereby he bends way down to my level, which he did in sending Jesus into the world as a little baby at Christmas time. 
uh, to be like one of us so that we could know the eternal God. Uh, What a great gift he's given to us. I think when we stop blaming other people or other situations, we start confessing. And when we start confessing, we have an understanding of who God is and who we really are. And we become like the tax collector who says simply to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then that new relationship begins. The righteousness that we think we might bring to the table is, as Paul says, garbage. It's rubbish compared to the precious blood that washes us spotless and promises us uh, an eternity in the presence of the living God. What a wonderful gift. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pause again here and just, uh, we always marvel at Jesus' teaching. You know, uh, if we had heard this story and we were there when Jesus told it, we'd probably expect the Pharisee to uh, be justified and the tax collector, uh, the sinner, Father, to be rejected. And I pray for us as a church that we'll be mindful, uh, Father, that uh, we are in the world in order that those around us you know, might come to know the truth about who you are and might realize that while you're high and lifted up and uncompromisable, you're also full of mercy and grace reaching down uh, to lift us up from our fallen condition in order to bless us, in order to make us your sons and daughters, in order to have us with you for all of eternity. And we're so thankful for that. Uh, Bring it to mind, I pray. Help us not to be people who blame others when we should be looking at ourselves and uh, reconciling ourselves back to you. And we thank you, Father, for that privilege that you won for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.